Hi, everyone. My name is Cooper Knowlton. And I'm Lee Bergstein. And we are the hosts of the Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar podcast. Our guest this evening is Brian Cuban. Uh, Brian is the author of The Addicted Lawyer. Um, also may know him as the brother of Mark Cuban. Um, tonight, we're going to be talking a little bit about Brian's path, uh, his path to becoming a lawyer. And we're going to talk a little bit about his battles with substance abuse and going to talk hopefully a little bit about uh, why lawyers are so prone to substance abuse issues and other issues similar to that. So, Brian, this is Lee. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for uh, bringing me on to talk about the addicted lawyer. In your book, you mentioned that you didn't go to law school um, or you didn't plan on being an, an attorney growing up. I'm wondering sort of at what point in your life you thought about that and how you ended up at University of Pittsburgh Law School. Okay, to answer that question, I have to take you back a little bit and give you some background. I had a traditional path to law school for non-traditional reasons. Uh, I was... It, I went to undergrad at Penn State, and at Penn State I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues. I was bulimic. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. I was also an alcoholic, and I was drinking all the time, and I was also exercise bulimic, which is the obsessive exercise for the purpose of offsetting calories. Bulimia is binging and purging. Exercise bulimia is obsessive exercise. So I was dealing with those three things, and my life at Penn State really became just about surviving day to day. I wanted to be a police officer. I was a criminal justice major. That would have worked out well, right? <laughs> but uh, so I was a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a police officer. And did so you my, have Did you have parents in law enforcement or anything? What What do you think sparked that interest? Uh, it was a major. I wasn't a very good student in high school. And my first year at campus was, and my first year at Penn State was at a branch campus, and it was a major that would get me to the University Park campus quickly. <laughs> gotcha. that, was, that, was, that was it. No, I didn't have any law enforcement background. Gotcha. Did you have? Did it your was, what? It, what did your parents do? My father uh, fixed cars with his older brother Marty in Pittsburgh, PA, from the end of the Korean War. They were both they were both veterans of uh, the Pacific and uh, the Korea. And they fixed cars at a place in Pittsburgh from the end of the Korean War until his brother passed away in 99, at which time he retired. So my my father fixed cars. My mom did different things, selling real estate and things like that. Things, you know, a very very mid-class upbringing. Brian, you mentioned that you were um, that you were struggling with alcoholism in college. I know thinking about my college days, and I'm sure a lot of college students who are listening to this, they kind of wonder, what does that mean? Because college students nowadays are so used to kind of drinking 24-7. So how would you define what your alco- alcoholism meant to you at that point in time? Well, it's funny. I speak to a lot of colleges, and some smart, smart aleck kid will always raise his hand and say, you're not an alcoholic until you graduate, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, it, it was defined like anyone would define alcoholism. I wasn't going to class. My grades were suffering. I was hungover every morning. I was drinking every night. I would drink alone. I would get drunk just to walk out of the house. I mean, well, the well, the environment may change. The dynamics of alcoholism are pretty much the same. Okay, it had a negative impact on my day to day living. What change? What changes is our self awareness. 
Yeah, I was when gonna... you're 18, 19 years old, you may not have the self-awareness to realize if this is a problem because you are in a scenario where a lot of other people are drinking. I was going to ask you that. An alcohol culture. Was there a self-awareness on your part about either the alcoholism or the eating disorder or the, or the exercise disorder or all the above? As, as to the eating disorders, none. You have to remember this was 1979 and 1980. Okay, there was no conversation about eating disorders. This was before the Internet. Uh, in 1983, the singer Karen Carpenter passed away from complications related to anorexia, bringing eating disorders into the pre into a public conversation in the pre-digital spot, you know, national spotlight. But for men, there was no talk at all. Uh, bulimia had only been a clinical diagnosis since 1976, and here we're in 1980. I didn't know what an eating disorder was. It was something, it was an act of binging and purging that I inherently felt was shameful that guys don't do, but I didn't know why I really was doing it, but I knew that when I did it, I felt normal for a few moments. But when that few moments passed, then the shame came in, like this overwhelming hurricane filling the void. So, of course, you have to feel that normality for another few moments and another few moments, and before you know it, you're a bulimic. You're, you know, you have, you're, you're bulimic. You're suffering from bulimia. But I had no understanding of it. From the alcohol standpoint, it was like you said, I was you know, I, I was certainly suffering in my behaviors in terms of class and grades, uh, in terms of socialization. I had to get drunk just to leave the house. Uh, I would go to the, back then it was a state store. Well, they still have state stores in Pennsylvania. I would go to the state store and buy a bottle of Jose Cuervo and drink it all before I even went out just to uh, deaden my shame of, you know, who I thought I was. I did not like myself. When I looked in the mirror, I saw this ugly, unloved person. And these were issues dating back to childhood, which is very important when we talk about law school, too, because law students, you know, you bring your baggage to the game, right? Sure. For sure. Brian, how, so, old, how old were you when you went to law school? I, I, the normal age. I went straight through. Uh, so what would that be? 1983 was my first year. So I would have been 22. And did did when you entered law school, did anything did did these behaviors change at all? Did they you know manifest themselves no, they, in different ways? They did not, and they did not. And let me back up. Why did I go to Pitt Law? Here's the reason I went to Pitt Law. I was sitting in the placement office at Penn State University, uh, looking through police officer jobs, just trying to figure out how I could not have to go out in the real world because all I was taking into the real world were these unhealthy, destructive behaviors, and I didn't want people to have to see that. I, they were my security blanket, and I wanted you know, them to be the things that I owned that no one else could see. Mm-hmm. There were these two guys sitting in the placement office talking about taking the LSAT, the law school admission test. And then they're talking about applying to pit law, and my bell started, you know, the wheels start turning, the bell start ringing. And I said to myself, I can go to law school. I can spend three more years where I do not have to present myself to the world as somebody who is ashamed of himself and somebody who hates himself, somebody who's drinking all the time, somebody who's engaging in this shameful act of binging and purging that I didn't really understand. And then I can run 20 miles a day and just do the exact same things I did at Penn State. I survived at Penn State. I actually had okay grades because I was able to pull pull it together and pull all-nighters and get decent grades the next day, something that doesn't work in law school, right? But it, does, it can work in undergrad. 
your your reasons for going to law school, uh, while being being more serious, sound kind of similar to the reasons that I hear from a lot of young college students that they don't really know kind of what else to do, um, and they don't want to enter. Right, the- that, that's actually that's actually not what they, I, I had other things I could do. I wanted to go to law school so I could repeat the cycles of running, binging, and purging, and drinking, and not have to enter the workforce for those reasons. Because I felt ashamed, and I felt that I would have to reveal who I really was if I entered the workforce. So going to law school seemed the logical thing to do. That, that's why I went to law school, to hide my mental health issues. And and at no point during your undergrad years or your law school years w- was there ever anyone who sort of approached you about these issues and said, you know, any family members, any friends who came no. up and... No, because, because one, you isolate. Two, this was the late 70s and early 80s and moving into the mid-80s. And back then, you really weren't talking about treatment, about counseling. Back then, especially, in, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s, you were either... For alcohol, you were either in 12-step, or you were in the hospital, or you weren't in recovery. We did not have all of the options we have today. We did not have the awareness we have today. These things were very shameful, and they were meant to be, you know, and we hid them. There was no discussion about these things back then, and for eating disorders, forget it. If you were a guy, you weren't in treatment for an eating disorder. Did the first year of law school, I, I know for me personally, the first year of law school, I found... Uh, very stressful, and I think it brought to, a lot of my like anxieties and insecurities came out in that first year, um, just by nature of you know you're in a room with a hundred other people, and everything you do is sort of you're 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 very much on a stage with cold calling, and you're competing against all your classmates, as opposed to undergrad where you're very much you know everyone sort of does their own thing, they take their own classes, they have their own major. Um, I, I found the first year of law school to be very. Um, to be sort of a very anxious, stressful period. I'm wondering if that sort of changed any of your behaviors or if it, if it exacerbated anything or made things worse. It, it exa- it exa- the, the, the stress and the competition certainly exa- exacerbated it. Did I say that correctly? Let me give you the context. I walked in the doors of Pitt Law for, fresh, you know, for 1L orientation the first day. There were all these people... In the audit, in the lobby, I remember it like it was yesterday. All these people in the lobby, people who had gone to Penn State, people, with, you know, people, people, some people I knew, and they're all talking to each other and they're all getting acquainted. I felt like I was totally alone in that room. I felt like everyone in that room was looking at me, saying, "This guy is a loser, a fat pig." I was bullied severely in school over my weight. That's something that uh, you know that, that caused a lot of mental health issues. People used to call me, the kids called me a fat pig, and I felt stupid, and they were looking at me and thinking, this guy is stupid, he doesn't belong here, he's not one of us, and I immediately shut down. I immediately decided, okay, things are the way they're going to be at Penn State, so I will keep to myself, I will do the things I did there, and of course I had no conversations with any of these people. I had projected all of this. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot a lot of students who walk into law school for the first time um, probably feel similarly to you. What would you say to to those students, the people who feel like they're the outlier when they first walk into their law say, school? I would I would say that the feeling is don't don't dismiss, don't don't be ashamed of the feeling. The feeling is normal. 
okay? It, what, what matters is how you're processing that feeling. Now, for me, I was bringing a lot of baggage in with those feelings that hadn't been dealt with, okay? So you have to look back. If someone's going in and feeling that way, there is a history leading up to that moment for why they feel that way about themselves. So it's important to examine that, and it's important to seek support for that, even if the support's not coming from, you know, the study groups. And, you know, find you have to seek out connections, even in law school. And when we go in and we project out, well, these are the smart kids, these are the, you know, I'm not going to fit in here, I'm not going to fit in there. Everyone Everyone in that room has their insecurities. Everyone in that lobby has their insecurities. So you have to realize that and realize we're all it's really all the same. We're all competing, but everyone in that room is bringing baggage to the game. I've I've How met I've, the baggage. I've met and worked with law students who I I think were probably in similar uh mental situations to to you, not necessarily with the same addiction problems, but su- supreme lack of confidence, feeling like they didn't belong. Based on your, your experience, and I guess also talking to people and doing research, is there anything that you could point to that, that would give a shot of confidence to some of these kids? Yes. I mean, you, when you walk, when, when you're feeling those feelings, okay, this is in 1983 when I was walking through the door. This is 2017. If you, if you are experiencing that type of anxiety walking through the door, talk to people about it. There is no that that is one of the things we deal with walking through the door. The shame, the weakness, the feeling that if we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, that that will be viewed as weakness and we we will be further ostracized within within the uh, law school community. This is 2017. If you are feeling that type of anxiety, talk to somebody about it. There is no shame in finding people to talk to, whether it's a counselor, whether it's family, you know, when dealing with dealing with our insecurities. It is okay to tell our it is okay to acknowledge our insecurities. It is okay to acknowledge our desire to be one of the group. It is okay to acknowledge that we can be vulnerable and, and seek support for that. There are plenty of options out there today to get support and get help if you are feeling anxiety instead of internalizing it where it's going to pop out at some point in possibly an unhealthy way. Yeah, I think I think law schools have definitely, I imagine they've gotten significantly better over the years. I know when I was, I went to the University of Michigan and they were always ta- talking to us about, you know, counseling services that were available and encouraging people to go and speak to people. And um, so, you know, I do think, I do think times have changed and it probably is. Absolutely. Is and I'll tell you what has changed too. Who's the first point of contact if you're a law student, it's the dean of students, right? For something like that, it's the assistant dean of students. Assistant dean of students, deans of students are exponentially more accessible today for those type of issues than they were in my day. Was there and any was there I, any attempt on your part to to talk to someone at the school, or did you even did you not even feel like that was an option? I didn't feel it was an option in my mind to tell anyone what I was going through would be weakness would be weakness and would be just validating what a loser I thought I was. And I wasn't a loser. I was a normal kid with mental health issues in a, in a tough environment. And so today you're going into a tough environment. Use the resources available. Talk to your dean of students if you're feeling anxiety. They are, they are trained to deal with these things. They want to help you. 
well, he's going to, you know, it's going to affect my law school career. It's going to affect my standing. It's going to affect how the professors do me. No. These things are confidential. They want to hear from you. They want you to succeed. I think that's, I think that's a really good... The dean of students and assistant dean of students are very important points of contact because today, in, in, in this era, they understand these issues. No, I think I think that's a really good point. Um, so I want to just move along a little bit and talk. You know, maybe you could just talk a little bit about your, you, you know, personally, your what your loss. Uh, law school experience was like there was a um, maybe funny isn't the right word but there was an anecdote in your book uh, about um, a moot court competition that you went to uh, drunk or or at least buzzed uh, maybe yes, you just... I, did my, I did my criminal procedure moot court drunk <laughs> <laughs> because that's how I dealt with my anxiety sure. I was not a litigator I've never was in dreamed I would be a litigator uh, I was not, I, the only way I was very shy, very withdrawn, and in my mind, I thought that if I did the moot court, it would help me bring myself out of my shell. But of course, as it got closer, the more the more anxiety and I, more anxiety I experienced, I dealt with it in a healthy way by drinking. Yeah. What when you were in law school, were you thinking at all? I mean, at this point now, fast forward, we just we asked sort of the same question earlier about. When you were an undergrad, were you thinking about what you would do next? When you were in law school, were you thinking about um, becoming a practicing attorney or where you would practice? I know after law school, you bounced around between a couple different jobs. Uh, but what was sort of your thought process like during law school about you know employment options? Well, I wasn't a very good student, and I have this. I, I, I'll tell you, I have a recurring dream, and as you might imagine, I wasn't a good student. I rarely went to class. I was either drunk or you know running. I, 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 I did not do well at all in law school. I have a recurring dream about going to grab my diploma, and the dean of the law school pulls it away and goes, psych, you really didn't graduate. <laughs> so I wasn't a very good student, so it wasn't like the job, you know, it wasn't like I was putting my name up on the job board for big law and getting and getting interviews. <laughs> right. So I was very lost as I, finished, as I went through law school trying to figure out what I was going to do. I saw my friends doing well, getting big law interviews, talking about big law. I would hear these conversations, and I would feel ashamed that I basically had nothing. I had no idea what I was going to do. I had all these people who were seemed in my mind to be doing well and were confident and had all these great jobs lined up. You know what I would do? I was so embarrassed at my situation that I would get dressed up before after I graduated, I would get dressed up into a suit and go down where I knew the law students hung out and had lunch, you know, with their first-year jobs and stuff, and just walk down there and have lunch in my suit so they'd think I got a job. That's really sad. It is. Isn't that sad? That that is how sad. Ashamed, <laughs> I was, of, of, ashamed of myself I was and how lost I was as I finished, as I finished law school. Brian, there was a sto- I, there, Brian. There was a story in your book about um, a current lawyer who uh, is also battling addiction, and she talked about how she felt like if she just got through law school, then she would be able to kick the habit and she would start being a you know functioning, productive member of society. Was there ever that feeling that I, you just had to kind of make it to the end of the line, and once you finished yeah. law school, you'd stop? Not that I'd stop, but there, there was a feeling that. If I made it through law school and I passed the bar, 
then I would finally be one of the one of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Did- if I made it through and passed the bar. That I'm finally one of them. That I finally showed them the other students, and I did pass. I I, I passed the Pennsylvania bar my first try, and uh, with very little studying, so it was, it was amazing because I was doing the same thing I did in law school, just drinking, not studying, running. And I at that point knew that I wasn't staying in Pittsburgh. I, I wanted to get out. I just felt like there was nothing for me in Pittsburgh in terms of jobs. Uh, I was just drifting, and so I decided to move to Dallas, Texas, where my two brothers also lived. And I figured I'd eventually take the Texas bar and turn my life around. That's why I left. That's why I left Pittsburgh and moved to Dallas. Did you think being closer to to your brothers and being away from kind of the origin of where these addictions took place would lead to the turnaround? Yes, uh, yes, I did. I felt like their love could really change change me and kind of save me as, as, as if love could save somebody dealing with addiction, right? Uh, so, yes, that, that I did think that, and I knew at that point my brother Mark was, you know, he wasn't, at, he wasn't internationally famous like he is now, but he was still doing very well. He started at his company, so I could come work for him. And so I packed up and left. I took the PA bar and then labored in July of uh, 86, Labor Day, 86, I packed up, took a Greyhound bus to Dallas because I thought I could stay with my brothers and their love would turn me around and save me and I would be a lawyer and I would pass the Texas bar and everything would be different. Did you consider not taking the Texas bar and, and doing something else, not being a lawyer at all? Yes, I applied for the Dallas Police Department. But by that, by the time I applied to the Dallas Police Department, I had already tried cocaine, so I knew that wasn't going to fly when they got to the polygraph. Was there a feeling that being part of the police department, this this beacon of law and order, would stop you from consuming alcohol, stop you from doing drugs? Well, not really, because the timing of that's a little different. I I moved to Dallas in 1986. I discovered cocaine in 1987 in a hotel in a bathroom in Dallas, Texas, and I instantly became a cocaine addict. Instantly, that does happen. And so, as it was after that that I applied to the Dallas Police Department. I had already failed the Texas bar once, and so I was just trying to get any job I could. And was your was your mental state at this point now that you were out of um, sort of the structured environment of? Um, undergrad and, and law school did was your mental state worse was it was this sort of environment were these environments which were you know probably a little more unstructured did did your addiction issues uh, how did they how did they work out then as opposed uh, compared with they, in- they escalated because you have to understand the dynamics of cocaine addiction I did that first line of cocaine in a bathroom in a hotel in Dallas Texas in 1987 and for the 15 seconds of that high, I looked in that mirror and I loved myself. I was handsome. I was going to get dates. I no longer had to isolate. I was the most best-looking guy in Dallas. I had to have that feeling again and again and again. And I became a cocaine addict. So cocaine became part of the equation. So now I'm a cocaine addict, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a bulimic. Not a very good resume for a big law, right? All right, you got a law job. Oh, maybe. Depends. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah. so, you... so but, but, but during that time, I failed the bar again. I, I failed the bar twice because, again, it was more important for me to engage in these destructive behaviors than study for the bar exam. Right. It, 
when you ultimately became, when you, when you finally, um, became a lawyer, what did you, uh, you started as a sole practitioner, right? Yes. Can you talk a little bit about I, the- st- I started as a litigation manager at, at an insurance company here in Dallas, not practicing, but doing litigation management for long haul trucking companies. So I was telling the lawyers what to do, you know, and, and reviewing bills as such as what happens with litigation management. So I was doing that, and while I was doing that, I started to, on the side, collect a uh, quote-unquote stable of clients, personal injury clients. And if you read the book, you know, I was literally ambulance chasing. I was going into chiropractor's offices with a stack of contracts. I would sit in the chiropractor's office, and the chiropractor would have a client who was in an auto accident. The client would come out of the office, Mr. Cuban, what are you doing here? Good to see you. This is one of our great lawyers, Mr. Cuban. Maybe you should talk to him. Really straddling the line between representation and solicitation, okay? You know, between ethical and unethical conduct. I think even now they've closed that loophole and doing something like that may be a violation of the Texas disciplinary rules. I'm not positive. But at that point, that is what I was doing. I was literally, literally, quote-unquote, ambulance chasing. If you've seen Paul Newman in The Verdict, where he's circling the uh, funeral homes, the deaths for the funeral homes, chiropractors were my funeral homes. It sounds like you were probably pretty good at it, though. You were, probably, were you making a lot of money at this point? I Yes. There was a, until, until, addiction, until addiction took me into a slide where I lost all my clients, I had very good years as a lawyer. And was all of that money going back into alcohol and drugs, or were you saving money? Yes. No, it was all going back into alcohol and drugs. And it eventually got to the point where uh, I did go to work of of counsel for some law firms, and I was doing pretty well. I was making six figures, but I was also doing cocaine in the bathroom of my law firms. I was doing cocaine in the morning to be able to bring myself to a par where I could do cocaine in the bathroom, (laughs) doing cocaine in my office. And so it was really that kind of addiction cycle where you can't sustain a quality of, of the profession, right? You can't sustain a quality of competence. And what happens, and if you read the book, I call it the, you know, the Peter Principle of Recovery. And this is something that happens with both law students and lawyers. I talk to them all the time. As you get further into addiction, your level of competence or your level of performance drops and drops, right? You, at first, imperceptibly, maybe you're high-functioning because you're young, but you but you yourself don't notice because you keep adjusting your normal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. You keep adjusting your view on what high-functioning is, whether it's great, until the test comes back and you suck. You know, whether you keep telling yourself that you're, that you're working hard and doing well, even though other people can see your level of performance dropping. And so you're working up to your level, you're working up to the, your level of incompetence, you know, the level drops lower, lower, and lower. And that's what was happening to me until finally I had no clients left. Brian, I'm wondering, you said something in the, in the, very, in the very first part of your book. Um, you mentioned that I, I believe it was 7% of adults uh, in the United States have problematic drinking habits, but that for yeah. lawyers, for lawyers, it's somewhere between 21 and 36%. 
And I'm wondering why you think that is and what in particular, what is it about the legal profession that, uh, that makes us have such higher rates of drug and alcohol abuse? That's a great question. And there there are a number of factors there. One, I think that the legal profession tends to, tends to attract the type of personality who, you know, who is high, high, high achieving, quote unquote, type A. And it also tends to attract the type of personality that has been culturalized in law school that to allow ourselves to show vulnerability is a bad thing. Okay? Right. And so instead of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and looking for different ways to deal with stress, different ways to deal with, you know, the baggage that we may bring to the game, let me give you an example. I talk to lawyers and law students and... They email me, and you know, we'll talk, and they have these issues. I never ask them much about the addiction or, you know, the, the, the substance, what's that, what that's like, because they, be, they wouldn't be contacting me if that wasn't an issue, right? Right. You know what I ask them about? I ask them about, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your parents. Tell me what's your relationship with your brother and sister. You know, were you bullied? Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have a Ph.D. next to my name, but I know from experience that the baggage is almost important as the recovery. Sure. Okay? So, but lawyers don't want to talk about these things. So when I start getting into these questions, I, I find out lawyers, men and women who have been abused, bullied, physically, mentally, and you find out all this baggage where the law student or the lawyer says, I'm okay with that. I've put that off, but they've never dealt with it. And eventually... It's coming out somewhere else in the form of drinking, in the form of something going on at home, in the form of drugs, in the form of de- clinical depression. And so this is why, one of the reasons I think that the rate is so high, because we are bad as a profession at dealing with our vulner- at, at being vulnerable and dealing with those issues. And also we are bad as a profession in the way we allow lawyers to deal with it. Law yeah. firms. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's. I think it's an interesting point. Before, before I was a lawyer, I was a teacher, and you know, we used to. When I was a teacher, we everyone used to always say the same thing. You know, teachers have such a. Um, uh, you know, every teacher goes home and has a glass of wine just to just to sort of take the edge off and get through the day, and it's the only way they survive. Um, but there is definitely something. There's a. There's a. There's sort of a. Uh, a darker uh, drinking habit associated. I mean, certainly a lot of lawyers that I, especially when I was in big law, a lot of lawyers that I work with had alcohol in their offices and it was sort of much more part of the culture as well. Um, all it's the still sub- part of the culture. It's still part of the yeah. culture. And let, let me give you examples. I'm not going to call out the bar associations that do it. I see it on Twitter. They, uh, you know, every day is, they, they tweet these memes, you know, every day is happy hour. Right. You know, happy hour yesterday. I saw it happy hour today. It's only freaking, you know, it's Wednesday. You're having a happy hour and it's Wednesday. So the culture of drinking that starts in law school with the, with the you know, with the student group happy hours carries over to law firms and carries over to bar associations who are supposed to be on the front line of changing the culture. Do you, do you think Young that... lawyer happy hours, bar association happy hours, law firm happy hours. Are we are we uh, contributing to the problem if we're naming this podcast Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar? No, no, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it. Yeah, you, you can find humor. You, you, 
dealing with addiction doesn't mean we can't find humor in things. Okay. Good. I, I, having podcasts encouraging people to you know to vent their to, you know to uh, outlet their issues at the bar, then that's a problem. I, I was. Mean, we didn't I call mean, two lawyers walking to a crack den. So. <laughs> I yeah, was worried. Yeah, I yeah, said. Yeah, that's, I said to Lee the other day when I found out that you were going to be our guest, I uh, and I started reading your book. I, I said to Lee, "Does he have any idea what the name of our podcast is? Is he going to have a problem with this?" But I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, you know what's funny? There's a, there's, a, there's a great book written by, uh, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to someone else. Written by Lisa Lisa Smith. It's called "A Girl Walks Out of a Bar." It's it's one of the mo- most read memoirs right now on. Uh, Addiction in the legal profession. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Well, she's walking so, out of the bar. We're walking into the bar. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's okay. That's okay. You know, the play on words is fine. But the point being is that as a profession, there is a systematic problem in the way we deal with drinking, the way we encourage drinking, and the way we don't encourage lawyers to come forward and seek help. I've also found there is a huge distrust of the systems put in place. Every state has a legal assistance program. In most states, it's also available to law students. How many law students know that beyond some, you know, 10-minute spiel at, at 1L orientation? Brian, I wanted so, to... Go ahead. Brian. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I wanted to ask about what you're doing. Outside of, you know, promoting your book, what what are you doing right now? I speak. I, I, I speak. Uh, I've gotten inquiries from numerous uh, bar associations to come speak. I sent my book to every bar association in the country. I thought it was that important to get the word out and start a conversation. At my expense, sent it over 250, even the little small ones. Sent it to every bar association. Hey, Brian, during those during those conversations with, with students and with bar associations, your story obviously is one of someone who was already either addicted or on the path to being addicted when you entered law school. Have you encountered students who... who by virtue of going to law school, that that's when the addiction set in? Yes. Uh, stress is a big trigger. Stress is a huge trigger for for, you know, for addiction. Uh, but again, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, okay? If I'm talking to a law student who all of a sudden is drinking a little more and a little more and a little more, I'm not talking about the drinking. I'm talking about how he or she is feeling about the drinking, okay? What's triggering the drinking? What's the environment uh, what's the what's the backstory? Starting, you know, taking them back to childhood. That's what I want to know. I want to know how it is all funneling into the trigger. Does that make sense? Yeah, Brian. I'm. I'm can you just talk a little bit about the transition from you mentioned um, your legal career and the issues you were having with drugs and alcohol, and and sort of when that. Uh, started to change when you became sober and the transition to sort of who you are today? Sure. There were two kind of major points uh, moving to that period. There was July of 2005 when I became suicidal. And at that point, I had really lost all my clients. And I had to be taken to a psychiatric facility, my first of two trips. And so at that point, you might think that was quote-unquote buck bottom, although I hate that term. You might think that's my recovery tipping point. It wasn't. I wasn't ready. And then in April of 2007, and at which point I was pretty much out of the law regardless, but was still uh, dealing with a lot of dealing with my drug and alcohol issues. I had a drug and a two day drug and alcohol induced blackout. I went back to the psychiatric facility, and then it was April 8, 2007, when I walked into a 12 step and began my recovery. 
You say you weren't ready. You say you weren't ready. What does that mean? It means I just wasn't in a position in my life where I was ready to take that first step in recovery. I mean, people, you know, people ask me all the time, well, that was bad. Why wasn't, why wasn't it that time? I don't know. I just wasn't ready. But I was ready in two, April 2007 when I finally uh, realized that there probably wouldn't be a third trip back to that psychiatric facility because I'd be dead. And I also felt like I had really reached the point where my family had had enough. I'm very close to my brothers. I'm very close to my father. And uh, I'm close to my mom now, although we didn't used to be. And there, there's a lot of that in there, too, if, if you saw in the book, although we have a good relationship now. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's no way to know what environmental moment will take someone into that first step in a recovery. But for me, it was the drug and alcohol-induced blackout, and that was, again, April That was April 6, 2007. And April 8, 2007, I walked in at 12-step, picked up my desire chip, and celebrated 10 years free of alcohol, drugs, and an eating disorder left in April. That's, That's amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. And, and what I tell law students and I, what I tell lawyers, I say, look, Whatever it seems now, you're noticing a problem, you're slipping, or it's slipped and it's dropped off the cliff. And again, this is the hardest thing to get law students to and, and lawyers to realize. I try to realize this is as good as it's ever going to get, okay? This is a progressive issue if we don't figure out how to deal with it. Well, I got grades. I don't want to have to drop out. That's a big fear. If I drop out, I'll never make it back. There are stories in my book, uh, somebody, a lawyer, a law student who dropped out and made it back, right? It, it happens. Law students do, if you have to leave to deal with these mental health issues, you can make it back. You if, can go back to law school. If you're someone who's a friend, uh, who's going to law school and, and someone you go to law school with, you, you start, to, start to see some of these warning signs, you see the signs of addiction. What can that student do for that person? I'd say, look. I, the first thing you say, the first thing you do is show empathy. Look, I care about you. I see. Here's what I see. You may not see it, or you may see it and just don't want to acknowledge it. But here's what I see. Listen what they have to say, and then how can I help? And to help, you have to know what the options are, right? Sure. If you're concerned about someone, educate yourself on the option. What's the option at school? Go to the dean of students yourself or the assistant dean of students. Say, I know someone. You know, what can we do here? I have dean of students tell me that happens all the time. Brian, do Find you... out what the counseling options are. Here are the counseling options. So you have to show empathy, and then you have to educate yourself so you can help lay a path. Brian, do you think your career or your life path would have taken, um, would have been significantly different had you not made the decision to go to law school? Can I, can I, I just want to finish up on that one statement. Sure. Because... What happens in college and law school is we get so wrapped up in our studies, our own lives, and we say, I can't deal with this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't need the drama. Right? Right. That's, that's very common. That's very common. I say, if not you, who? If not now, when? Brian, so I, think about that. Brian, I had uh, just one more question for you. I, I saw in your book that you obviously reached out to a number of lawyers and, and spoke to lawyers who had battled addiction and law students who had battled addiction. How did you how did you find these people? Uh, people know. I mean, I, I've been a recovery advocate for a long time. Plus, being a lawyer, 
on Twitter and Facebook. People know who I am. Especially, I, I'm on the board of Young People in Recovery, so I'm very uh, in touch with you know the millennials in recovery, and a lot of them are law students. So that wasn't hard at all. It, 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 people know who I am. So I, I, Getting, I finding the ones who want to tell their story was the challenge. Yeah. So you know, as as lawyers who want to kind of um, make sure that other lawyers are are aware of the risks or are doing things to help themselves that they're running into problems. What, what can we do? And I mean the lawyer ecosystem in general, but also me and Cooper to make people aware of this problem. Stay on your bar association to do something with this. Stay on your bar associations to get out, get out into the law firms. stay on your legal assistance programs to get out into the law firms, to change the culture of, you know, of the happy hour. The, the, the networking happy hour, it, 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 because we can do it one person at a time, but we also have to change the systematic issue. And the systematic issue is in the law firms, in the bar associations, and in the fear of the system. So start getting involved with your local bar association to educate and bring awareness to these issues. I think that's a great place to uh, wrap this up, Brian. Um, we're going to have to have you on for a part two because I still have a million more questions I want to ask you, but I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll we'll wrap it up here. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being so honest and so open with your story. Uh, this was a great conversation. And, and go out. No, I appreciate it. If you're a law student or, or a young lawyer or a lawyer struggling with um, not just addiction, but but lack of self-confidence or um, feeling like you're isolated, I would highly recommend picking up a copy of, of Brian's book. And you know, and you know what? If, 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 if you just need someone to talk to, to bounce something off of, Brian at AddictedLawyer.com. Brian with an I. Great. All right, Brian. Well, thanks again, and we'll be in touch. Thank you, guys. Thanks, thanks Brian. Bye-bye. Bye.